Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Nadi Simpson to Books, Books, Books to talk about her breathtaking debut novel, Song of the Crocodile, published in September 2020 by Hachette. Nadi is a Uwalare storyteller, educator and performer from Northwest New South Wales, known to local Indigenous people as Crocodile Country. She's also a musician, songwriter and performer with folk duo The Stiff Gins, which has performed nationally and internationally for 20 years. In 2018, Nadi won Queensland's Black and White Indigenous Writers Fellowship for the manuscript of Song of the Crocodile, which we'll be talking about today. And in 2020, the beginning of this year, her first play, Black Drop Effect, was performed at the Sydney Festival. Nadi, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Oh, it's really fantastic to have you here. I I finished your book in, well, I read the whole book in one day and I absolutely loved it. So I've been so looking forward to talking to you about it and um, hearing you, you talk about it with our listeners. Could you start by telling me what's the book about? For me, the well, the book follows um, three generations of a family in an outback New South Wales town. Um, and we see their lives and their relationships and their landscape change over this time. Uh, and, you know, for me, it's kind of a story that uh, I understand to be somewhat similar to my own family history. I wanted to explore the people and the places that I belong to and the things that I recognise and hear. So it's about place, how we connect to it and how we connect to each other in, in, in the landscape. Nadi, could you read a, an extract from the book for us, please? Yeah, sure. There's, uh, there's the family that continues their life um, at the campgrounds and in Darnmore, and there's also these kind of ancestral people that do the same thing, live congruent lives in different places, which is very much part of the living living family story. And this little excerpt is um, a young girl, Malawildul Moronga, and her grandfather. They're sitting down in the camp watching the goings-on um, in the day. Walking in the groove made by his own feet, Malawildul Moronga took a seat beside her grandfather under a sprawling gum that threw shade across a near corner of the camp. The settlement spread out before them talking time and playing time. A smile swelled in his cheeks, things that don't often agree. Now we sit and wait. Badar nudged his chin towards the waiting camp. Soon after, three old ones, men doubled over with age, with thick beards and walking sticks, huddled together at the edge of a coolabar's great boughs. As they spoke, they drew their words into the ground, their dumbai smooth and shining through years of use. It appeared on them as a longer arm or third leg, not merely a wooden staff used to steady and draw. Sticks can be useful things. Da shuffled his crossed legs beneath him and smoothed the dirt before him with his hands. He drew three circles in the top corner of his canvas. As he did, a group of bitterly came running into the clearing, boys, jostling and pushing and shouting and kicking dust through the camp. Perfect. Da watched as the children became louder, more physical. He began to chuckle as he added the boys, three fingertip dots in the far corner of the sketch. When he had finished, he raised his head. Yama! The word pushed hard from his stomach. It carried across the clearing. The old ones turned towards the call. Da said to her under his breath, 
Watch carefully now. Straightening, he shouted across the camp, when shall we bore up? Time for a good sing, don't you think? And these noisy bit, eh? Must be time they left the camp, went with the men. He nodded at the group of boys, now taking it in turns to throw rocks at a sapling. Why do you think you can tell us our business? We decide when it is time for Bora. The old ones leaned on their dumbai, staring hard at Dar. Nah, nah, Giru, yes, you are right. But those boys are too old for games. Look at them. They should be out hunting, feeding themselves, learning law. The elders looked hard upon the raucous group then leaned inwards, speaking, then drawing, casting glances at the group of rowdy boys. Now, my darkest little shadow, you shall learn something of yourself. Her dar let out a gleeful laugh, not unlike a child himself. Bire, come here. We want to see if you should begin law. As the boys pushed each other towards the old people, a reed warbler hopped at the edge of the clearing. What do you want, old man? asked the boy. To have a look at you. The bird jumped into the air and flew over the heads of the old ones. The boys took off after it, eyes in the clouds, chasing the sky. Don't you run across there? A dumbai swung, connecting with the shins of a boy. Too close. A second dumbai was launched, smashing into the toes of another. Have to knock some sense into you, do I? The final blow cracked against the thigh of a third bidet. Maluildulamuranga winced. The grey ones glared as the eyes of the last boy began to fill with tears. It was too much for Grandfather. His howls of laughter rang through the camp and skimmed the river, making a chuckle along with him. What did you hit us for? The biray spoke through heaving sobs. You trod on us. No, we didn't. We didn't touch you. Another gush of laughter erupted from Dar's body, shaking it with delight. You stood on us. You stepped on our shadow. Dar, stifling his glee, bid Mullawil Dormuranga listen. Haven't your grandmothers taught you? Careless wedding are. They're not doing their job. The shadow is a part of us. If you get too close. An old man swung his dumbai, whipping hard through the air. Marty, thank you. I think I'll start by asking you, where does that scene take place? So this is, uh, this is in an old camp. If you can imagine the town that is um, the centre of some people's lives in the book, uh, before the town, before the time that settlers um, and squatters came to that area, it uh, beside two rivers were camping areas, and so really, it's the it's the place, um, the the part of country before a town was built. Uh, and I sort of try to put these things throughout the book to give you an understanding that yes, there's done more in this place, but it's also somewhere else. So they're sitting at the edge of the camp that years down the track transformed into um, a place where whitefellas and blackfellas were living in relationship to each other. Nadine, in, in 2018, I read that you attended a creative lab for Indigenous artists with musicians and writers and dancers, poets, and Wesley Enoch spoke to you all. What did he say? And was it that um, attending that lab that inspired you to, to start writing, to write your first play and your first novel? I attended that lab um, um, as a as a songwriter, really, as a musician, um, and Wesley addressed the room. I'll never ever forget it. It was one of those times in my life that you know is clear as crystal clear in my mind's eye that he sort of and there were poets and all these amazing creatives, artists and dancers and musicians. And uh, he said he sort of leaned, seemed to lean in close and he said, "2020 is coming." You fellas need to be ready because there's going to be this wave of colonial narrative which would is going to celebrate, you know, the 250th um, landing of Lieutenant Cook then. Uh, you've got to be ready because you are an important part of our collective voice. 
And when I saw Wesley, who's really very supportive and affable most of the time, and him being so serious, I thought, oh, you know, I need to take notice of this. I had just put, I had put the book into black and white. So I was kind of up in the air about where that would be. Uh, and, you know, you, you can't plan for those things. You need to plan around it. So definitely the idea for the play that I wrote, um, Black Drop Effect, came from those very words from Wesley. But it really is sustaining an understanding of how being creative can help people. So the play came out of it. And the book kind of surged through for me at the time of, of that conversation. And it really framed um, a lot of the editing and the intention once I started to craft instead of dreaming it up, I was trying to craft a story and, and those words always stayed with me from that point. Nadi, you grew up in Sydney, but you spent much of your childhood in Walgood in northwest New South Wales, which is where your family's from. Your novel's set in the fictional town of Darnmore. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I wondered, is it based on, on Walgood and on that part of New South Wales where you spent a lot of time as a child? I've had some really interesting yarns with um, other blackfellas who've read the book and they often say, you know, this is just like my hometown. So it was important for me um, to try and have uh, Darnmore appear as its own, you know, specific place, but that they're, they're because of our shared history in a lot of these places, that it is able to be nowhere in particular, but everywhere. Um, and I didn't want to want to call the place Walgut because I don't live there. Um, I'm connected to that place, but there are people with lived experience and stories um, that should come before any made-up story about a place. That's why I, I called it Darnmore, because while my life is informed by that little country town and our family's sort of interactions with it, um, there's a thing that Aboriginal people have that even creative stuff um, represents people. Even when you're creative, you are, there's a whole lot of people standing beside and around you. So it wasn't, I don't want to speak for Walgut. I wanted to create my own place. But, you know, there's a lot of um, recognisable things um, that are linked to not just that town, but a lot of towns in our area. I hope that I caught the spirit of the difficulties and the, and the joys of places like that. Let's talk a little bit about Darnmore. It's made up of two distinct parts. There's the town and there's the campgrounds and they're joined by a road called Old Black Road. Could you tell us about those two parts and how they're different from each other? Uh, if we go back to the time of, you know, that little excerpt that I read, uh, the spaces between the rivers were different travelling points and camping places. Uh, and because those rivers are in that environment, there's a beautiful, rich, fertile soil there. Um, which really was a beacon for people travelling inland from Sydney and places like that. So um, the, the soil and the environment is perfect for uh, uh, a stationary settlement. And I think that's what the, um, the, that's what the appeal was about Darnmore that you've got two rivers there, you're right for water, the, the ground is, is good, and um, this sort of settlement sprung. And the town of Darnmore, I think, is very, as with a lot of country towns, eh, they sort of, they pride themselves on the progress that they have eked out of what they perceive as nothing. So Darnmore is really about kind of progressing. Um, maybe modernity and the Aboriginal people in the story are excommunicated from that, um, kept at a distance. They live along the, along the Munga Munga River um, and their houses are made from the scraps of the town. Um, so you have these two things that are, two places that are in complete relationship to each other, even though it's a very complex um, one. Uh, that don't try 
as hard as they can to have nothing to do with each other. And I mean, in a, in a really isolated part of the world, how can you sustain that? One of the questions I wanted to ask is, the effort that you take in keeping people at an arm's length, is that, does that take more than um, living side by side? And we see how people try and integrate and try and overlap and try and dissolve into each other with, um, you know, uh, good outcomes and sometimes not so good ones. And the differences in their living conditions are so stark, aren't they? So the people in the town live in quite fine houses with lovely gardens, they have running water, they have electricity, they have sewage drains, and the people who live in the campground don't have any of those facilities, do they? And they live, as you say, in very simple houses. I think um, Margaret, we first hear about her, we'll talk about her in a moment. Her home is made of hessian and tin, as you say, made from leftover material from the town. Nadi, can you tell us what are relations like between the white people who live in the town and the Indigenous people who live in the campgrounds? I think that um, there is very, very little interaction, meaningful kind of relationship. Uh, and at the time that the book sort of kicks off, the only sort of um, interactions that people have are commercial. So the men are out off working on stations and, you know, on the cotton farms and sheep farms. And the women are kind of left behind. And, and it's this, the women and children living along the campgrounds, which, which spurs a lot of innovation, I think, from, from that mob in terms of how they look after each other with very little and then how they kind of start to project or understand a, a future. Um, so really it's as little to do with the other as possible from both sides and mainly because, um, you know, it's contested ground. I think that's in the back of everybody's mind that there's a big discussion about um, place and land and ownership and agency that is never had. At the centre of the novel, as you say, there are three generations of family. In particular, there are three generations of very, very strong women. There's Margaret, her daughter Celie, and Celie's daughter Millie. I'd like to talk about each of them in turn if we can. So let's start with Margaret, the matriarch, the grandma, Margaret Lightning. Who is she and what is she like? Margaret is, uh, Margaret is this beautiful, gentle, uh, accepting soul who uh, has built a home uh, and a hearth from nothing and by herself, actually. She, to me, is the strength of um, black women and she's a, she's a nurturer. And so from Margaret, I think that we understand this... Um, it's not quiet. I'm trying to think of the right words. My sister is reminds me a lot of her that there's this quiet strength uh, that Margaret has. And she's able to put the needs and the feelings of others first and be happy with that. Um, so from her, everything blossoms. And, and I think also the time that, you know, Margaret's formative years of life have mean that she's um, subservient to white people as well. So there's a kind of a question about is her softness uh, something that she's had to mirror and learn? I think definitely with her family, we see that it's very genuine, but, um, you know, I think Margaret is, Margaret is a, a nurturer and she is a carer and she is the rock upon which everybody is allowed to be and have their own personalities and move in the world the way that they need to. And we see her in that nurturing role, not just with her family, as you've said, but also in her work. She works at the local hospital, doesn't she? That's right. Margaret works at the back of the hospital, not only allowed in to pick up the soiled laundry, um, and she works at a couple of coppers out the back. And she's really there as a, as a laundress, but the Aboriginal patients 
in the town uh, or the campgrounds patients are also not allowed inside the hospital proper. So Margaret takes it upon herself to check on these people and to send messages and to bring food and, and to um, try and get information that may not be forthcoming from the doctors and the nurses. And it's a natural thing. I think uh, uh, it's just the campgrounds transported into into um, Darnmore and those relationships and the the, um, the the reliance on each other for survival really is continued in that very campground way um, at the back of the hospital with Margaret. And there's another really lovely example of that. Something upsetting happens to Margaret and her daughter Celie decides that to provide comfort. She's going to arrange an outside dinner at the campgrounds for a group of the local women. And I think that's one of my favourite scenes in the book. Um, tell us a little bit about that dinner. And then I'd like you to, um, to tell us how important is female companionship for the women of this community? Mm. Well, um, the ladies decide they want to try and cheer up Margaret and take her mind off things. And so they they go up, up, up river a little bit and set up a little camp I think they get they rope some boys into dragging up an old lounge and uh, they end up having this really beautiful it's like a barbecue I guess what we would understand today is a barbecue this sort of um, a sharing of food um, and uh, strengthening of relationship with a lot of humor I mean those ladies um and a lot of Aboriginal people too actually know how to use humour as a way not only to cope but as a way to support and a way to um, uh, get through really difficult things. So the ladies end up having this, you know, moonlit dinner on the river, which sounds amazing, uh, with a lot of joy and a lot of sort of ribbing and a lot of laughter and it goes a long way into reminding Margaret, I think, that while awful things can happen, you take the risk of hard things happening when you are connected to Darnmore, the place. The thing that you really have that you own lies in each other. Mm. So um, uh, that's really what happens there at the, on the river. And the, the the women, as I said a little bit earlier, they're all left, you know, behind. All the fellows are out doing this and that and working on stations, whatever. Uh, and the women are left to take care of the house and each other and they're really, uh, they are the first kind of, I think, the first network of family in every campground woman's life because they see the ladies more than they see their fellas. They might be out, you know, for six weeks, cotton chipping or something. I don't know. And the world of men, I think, at that time was very, it was a very separate thing. And so without, you know, your auntie down the road or your sister girl next door, you're not going to last long. So a lot of the joy, a lot of the sustainability of life is reliant on, on the on the woman next to you. That's how important it is. Let's talk now about um, Margaret's daughter, Celie Billy Mill. When we first meet her, we see a lovely scene between her and her husband, Tom. He has to go away, and I'm sorry, I should have mentioned, um, and she's heavily pregnant. Tom has to go away, and it turns out that she ends up giving birth while he's away, and that, uh, that ties in with what you've just said. Her mother, Margaret, is really just essential isn't she to the, the the birth and the birth process can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances in which Celie gives birth to her daughter Millie Celie uh, is waiting for her husband to come home and a big storm comes over well actually a storm is on the horizon and a lot of times out that way campgrounds you might see weather but it may not come anywhere near you uh, and also it may dissolve before it's begun. And so there's this sort of anticipation about um, what's going to happen with this big storm cell coming in. 
and Margaret is a her last name is Lightning, and they watch the lightning flash off in the in the distance. And um, whether it's because Margaret has a kinship with that weather, um, or whether she's being you know rewarded for being the type of woman that she is, or whether those things had to happen for this little baby to be born. Silly goes into labour during this big storm. And um, as she's born, uh, a bolt of lightning hits the ground and makes its way into the old bed that um, Celie is giving birth on. And the flash changes the colours eyes of the baby and really Millie walks in that world um, uh, with the mark of that environment. And also, you know, the lightning giving her those beautiful blue eyes is also a way of it claiming her as well. So Millie emerges in this sort of tempest storm and, uh, you know, sort of sets the scene for things that she will face in her young life to come. After Celie's given birth to Millie, she needs to find a job fairly quickly. And to do that, she needs to go into town. And we have a scene where she comes in all dressed up. I think there's a lovely description. Her sister says to her at one point, what are you doing all dressed up like a black princess, Margaret? Um, That's her sister, Bess. And Bess is very worried about her going into town all dressed up like this without permission. Why is that? And, And why did she need permission to go into town? I think sort of things have kind of rolled along in a in a way where there's kind of a unspoken uh, I don't know if it's an agreement there's an unspoken rule that those who don't belong shall not be seen within the town and as Bess says why would you want to go somewhere you're not wanted and so people have worked out a way to live um, around each other and um, Sealy sort of thinks and is spurred on to the the realisation that this ain't going to work for me, you know. Not only does she um, have to look after her new daughter, but she's got to worry about her mother too. So there's generations either side that are relying on her. And despite her sister's kind of warnings, Silly takes the plunge to walk into town and try and find... um, work a very very incredibly brave thing to do um, particularly as there's no kind of framework for success in that way her own mother needs to scoot around the back alleys to get into the backyard of the place that she she works so So where does who does silly go to where does she go to try to find a job silly walks into well really into the guts of the town <laughs> and she goes up to the mayor's, uh, mayor's house, not the mayor's office, goes up to the mayor's house um, and asks his wife, uh, well, does she ask? She suggests it would be a good idea for the mayor's wife to have her on as a, as a, um, as a to do the laundry. And she frames it, she's very clever, Celia, she frames it in such a way that kind of, makes it sound like, look, nobody, I know you don't want to do laundry. Nobody really wants to do laundry. I will do that and I will do it on this way, in this way at this time. And so it really was framed not as a decision, although um, the mayor's wife sort of says she'll have to defer to her husband. Um, but she sort of makes a perfect case. Um, uh, and she picked a target so that a no actually um, wasn't an option. No, it would be very difficult for um, that lady in particular to say no. So Celie um, perfectly framed that whole interaction despite the fact she had no idea how or where it was going to go. She gets that job. She works for the mayor's wife. And it's very, very hard physical labour, isn't it? Can you describe to us the work that Celie's doing? This is a time before... Um, washing machines actually and you know washing machines might have been down in town down south but they haven't made their way 
and they won't make their way for a little while out into the scrub. So Celie is using a copper, she's using a mangle, she's using a washboard um, to do all the laundry and to peg it out and to iron it up and put it back in the, 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 uh, the neat little linen cupboard at the back of the, um, Murphy's house. So she is moving and bending and stretching and scrubbing, um, making a life of that never-ending it's a cycle, really, a cycle of movement in cleaning up other people's business. And that, of course, is an echo of the work that her mother was doing at the hospital. That's right. And I, you know, I think um, Celie had known or seen um, what was required. Uh, so she had a little bit of confidence in, in the ask of Mrs Murphy. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's an inference that, you know, as the lightnings are um, connected to the actual physical um, uh, weather cells, that maybe the lightnings and the Billy Mill women are connected to this type of work. It's part of their story. So... Um, it was definitely a, a plus for her walking down, marching in there and telling telling Vera Murphy she's going to do a laundry. And Nadi, Celie has to raise herself the, um, the issue of being paid, doesn't she? That That's not volunteered. She mm -hmm. has to really say, and what will you pay me for this? And then later on she does so much good, that she does the work so well that um, the mayor's wife starts to recommend it to her to other people. And all the time, Celie's having to say, well, will I be paid for that? Will you pay me for that? Mm. Is she paid properly for the work that she does? Well, Celie doesn't get a choice in negotiating what the pay is. I think maybe that question about will I be paid is as far as she'll get, where Vera Murphy, she makes the terms. And, and there's a kind of... You know, the, the people who are bringing in extra work are Mrs Murphy's connections. And so there is that barrier um, for Celie in negotiating anything with, with a group of people that she has no connection with. So Mrs Murphy decides on the extra work, um, when she'll do it and how much she gets paid. And Celie kind of just assumes the responsibility of that, probably... Um, hoping a little bit in the future that she'll be able to, you know, negotiate or have some kind of say in the way that she's um, she's paid for that work. But definitely, as in Darnmore, she's kept at a distance in, in the decision-making of that place. Celia ends up being so successful that she actually starts her own business, doesn't she, the Blue Shed. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The Blue Shed um, is... Well, Celie kind of, with, with the fact that she's moving into the town and starting to see how things work and also very connected to um, the mayor's residence, not that she knows anything more than other people would, but um, seeing how the machinations of the town and how it works, she realises that there's an old shed out um, at the edge of town and she goes and asks a young fellow who works in town um, if he knows anything about the blue shed and who owns it and what's it being used for and makes a case to its owner um, to start up a laundry uh, and she will take on the laundry that he was about to ask her to do, um, the laundry from the Murphys and all the other ladies that come in and also in a beautiful sort of circular um, way of coming together ends up doing the laundry of the hospital as well which is where her mother was and the blue shed to me I kind of I love the idea of it we now see Celie also bringing in people from the campgrounds to the shed which becomes a meeting place it's almost like a really big step from the edge of the river into town for blackfellas and the men that are in and around and working or not come and have lunches there and so it becomes a bit of a hub as well as it be and, and she employs a number of the other the other women from the campground so it be, it becomes a, a really a bit of a hub doesn't it yeah and I think I often think you know it's a very um 
blackfella thing that you know if you live out on the outskirts you've got to look after each other and make sure you're going okay if you get a job in the town you do the same so it's really campgrounds life um, infiltrated into the streets of Darnmore, but kept quiet so that nobody realizes um, what's going on there i think it's kind of threatened by the fact that it is so valuable in many ways social and commercial um, to the campgrounds people and if Darnmore people got a sniff of that then they will try and shut it down quick smart it's also about sharing, isn't it, that she's had, she hasn't had good luck. She, Celie's worked incredibly hard and that's why she's been able to, to you know, she's incredib worked incredibly hard and she's very enterprising. So that's why she's been able to set up the business. But she doesn't just keep that good fortune to herself. She wants to use that to share, to, to you know, bring joy and work to the other members of the community. I, I think that's one of the themes of this book is the, the idea of connection, the connection between people. I, I definitely think, I mean, the campgrounds, at the campgrounds, you are reliant on those around you for your, your well-being and your success. Uh, what you have, you share. What anyone has, they share. Um, it makes sense that that continues in uh, places like the Blue Shed and in Darnmore. It's just in really stark contrast to the way that the rest of the town works. Um, so I think that definitely it's almost as important to look after the person next to you as it is for your own, your own, because in the end, that's all that those, those that mob had, they had each other. And that was, that was, um, that was the most important thing in their lives. And Nadi, you spoke at the beginning that by looking at the, um, the town through the perspective of three different generations of women, we get to see how the town changes over time. Uh, at one point, Margaret tells her granddaughter, Millie, that Celie, that's Millie's mother, has changed things for everybody. And she says something really lovely. She says, your mother has made it so that everyone here has so much more. What does she mean by that? Mm. In that beautiful Margaret way. And it's sort of uh, Margaret sort of relates to the environment in, in very, a very particular way. I don't mean the physical environment, but the landscape of people, that it's almost she can um, take all of the unseen things into account. And I think what she's sort of hinting to her granddaughter there is that not only um, has Celie been at the forefront of great change that will happen um, for their own family, but also taking steps for the community and also in a way um, not helping, uh, forcing, forcing the people of Darnmore to um, understand, interact, see uh, a reality that they're blind to. Margaret can kind of understand that what is happening, what Celie is um, initiating is not just important for the people out on, out on the edge of town, that it will come to be incredibly important for the people inside of town too. Let's talk now about Millie, Celie's daughter. What's she like as a child, Nadi? What sort of a little girl is she? I reckon Millie is, you know, she's a happy, a happy little girl. She's cheeky. She has very strong women around her. So she's actually, as a little girl, you know those little girls that are a little bit too old for their time? <laughs> they, they know a lot and they're, they're actually very highly emotionally intelligent. I think Millie is exactly that. She's got, you know, really the three pillars of her auntie and her mother and her grandmother around her so that, you know, she basically hears everything that's going on. Um, whether she engages with it or chooses to um, take notice of it is really up to her. Um, but she she knows enough to have thoughts about adult things. And little girls like that are quite delightful. I think my sister, who I was talking about earlier, her daughter <laughs> is exactly like that. We call her a little woman. And I think Millie is filled with the innocence and the joy of life, but also, you know, can be um, quite serious about having, uh, not opinions, but... Um, 
about wanting to join in the world of the, of the women as well. She's also very kind, isn't she? There's a lovely description when she's helping her mother doing the laundry and the sheets for, um, I've just gotten the mayor's what Mrs Murphy. Yes. And um, Millie gets the idea of putting a little sprig of lavender in the sheets to make them smell nice. Now, Mrs Murphy's never shown any kindness to her, but she just thinks that would be a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. And she then continues to do it, even though she gets no feedback or um, thank you or acknowledgement for that. I thought that really said a lot about her for um, for a small child to be that thoughtful and kind. Yeah, she, well, she's sort of idiosyncratic in that way that, I mean, you know, this is a good idea, why would I not do it? And I don't care what people think about it. Um, there's some really interesting, lovely smelling flowers there that she plays plays alongside most days. Um, I think she thought in her own way that that is a, Yes, a kindness for Mrs Murphy, but also a way to kind of elevate her mother's work, a way for her to work alongside her mother. Um, And she is very kind. We see with her when she interacts with her cousins, the the crazy twins, and she gives them some posies for their birthday. Mm. Even that though, she's stolen from Mrs. Murphy's garden. Yes, she yeah. took them, and she didn't. She didn't tell anyone. She's very regretful. She's sorry about it at the end. But she, uh, even though the cousins who are at the age where every every sort of little small kid thing annoys them, um, and they are sometimes really nasty to her, she loves them with all her heart and does beautiful dear things for them. So she is a she is a very um, open-hearted, generous little girl. I'd like to talk now a little bit about what school is like for her. So she and her good friends go to Downmore High School. Do many kids from the campground go to that school and how do the kids from the town, the white kids, treat Millie and her friends? There's three the three girls that sort of manage to get to about third form as the oldest campgrounds students. Uh, so there are, there's an idea that there are younger black kids in the high school, um, but these three really are at the forefront. You know, they're pushing boundaries for everybody just by going to school, and they all really love school in their own way. Um, Millie spends her time in the classroom mostly trying to stay completely still, which takes up a lot of energy. Uh, trying not to be noticed, but as as she engages with her learning, and they've got a, a special a specific teacher who really is quite inspiring to her. Um, when they want to be involved and active in learning, Millie is quite courageous in talking um, in the classroom, which the other kids, for the other kids, it's a no go. I mean, they're actually kind of struggling with the fact that. Uh, we're seeing seeing black kids or black people so close to them. Uh, they're kind of a product of the environment where, you know, arm's length again, done more. And now and they've the got... white kids actually taunt them, don't they? They call them really terrible names. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, their presence in the classroom is a confronting thing for those white students. And, you know, they're formed and shaped by the attitudes of their parents and, and that town where they don't know, they only know black people in terms of, you know, um, them being the workers for their family's farm or whatever. So there's no, they, they have no way of understanding how to relate to Aboriginal people in particular, but especially these three girls who, you know, they're actually interested in learning and a lot of the other class can't wait to get out of there. They're just doing time till they're allowed to leave. So um, the physicality of those girls in the classroom is uh, confronting for a lot of um, subtle but also a lot of obvious reasons. And on her 15th birthday, Millie's called into the principal's office at the school. Why is that? What does he want to tell her? The principal sort of lets her know that nobody's ever been this far, no campground student has been attended this far into um, into high school and, you know, you're welcome to leave. You, there's no reason for you to be here anymore. And Millie sort of says, but I want to be here and my mum wants me to be here. 
and they get all flustered and say, well, we're going to have to, you know, sort this out with department head. We don't actually know how to deal with this. And, um, you know, Millie kind of leaves the principal's office uh, hoping that this will get sorted and she'll be able to start turning up on the next the next week and continue with her education. Uh, and her... Each of those three friends, those girls, are so important for each other's survival at the school that I think not only does Millie, she engage with learning and, you know, she's never seen neon, the, the kind of the fluorescent lights and, and um, the blackboards and the smell of the stencils. There's this sort of romanticised understanding of this special place, but also it's kind of making her strong. It's, um, Keeping her, keeping her, uh, it's, it's teaching her, growing her. Um, and those three, I think, they know without speaking how important it is that they're all there together because it almost could be too much of an ask if there was only wow. two. So um, Millie definitely wants to go on, but I think in the back of her mind she really knows that she needs to be there for the other two as well. And Nadi, something that, is clear through the whole of the book and you you don't sort of make it explicit, but you just drop hints all the way through of the institutionalised racism that's the background against which these people are living their lives. So I think we've got at one point, we, we have Celie who's been working for Mrs Murphy for five years and she, Mrs Murphy asks her to come into the lounge room to discuss something and you make the point, well, in five years of working there, Celie's never been invited into the house. She's only ever got as far as the linen cupboard at the, the front of the house. And then there's a, another scene with Millie who's delivering laundry for her mum and she's deciding should she go the most direct route, which would be straight down the main street of the town, or should she go the long way around the side streets? And she realises that she really better go down the, the side streets. Mm. I think that with examples like that through the book, you have really made it very clear the background of racism against which all of these people are living their lives. I want to ask you a little bit about the ancestral spirits and the role that they play in, the, in this book. Tell us a little bit about Jakey Bird, the songman. Who's he? Uh, Jakey Bird is the... He actually was, if I can put it this way, it sounds weird, an ancestor for me. So I had only ever written, well, I wrote a play, but that's different because people embody the words. So And the action is... Um, is what's the word the action is um, um, uh, embodied the act, it's a move it's a movement the action is moving as well but I had never written going in my mind's eye going from a four minute if I'm lucky folk song to a novel how am I going to do this and um, this character of Jackie Bird came to me because he's a song man and I know that stuff and I know how um, songs interact with culture and so uh in the book jackie bird is he's the he's the son of a star um who was also a bird Boralga is his mother and she creates him through a strand of her hair and he sort of he twirls through existence and soaks up knowledge and uh he waits for the time that he's deposited on earth to start this big song cycle and he's really he's almost the conductor of uh, the ancestral world he waits to create to um, to build a choir which are made up of people you know who are already in the sky but also people who move up um, from earth and come up to make part of the choir and he's bossy and He's exacting and sometimes he's grumpy and impatient, but he holds the key, the, the key which is music. He holds the song, which will kind of shake the foundations of Darnmore and the campgrounds and, and almost realign things to where they need to be. So Jackie Bird, for me, was a wonderful guiding spirit. In the book, he does the same. He sits around and waits for people and then... He gets into it. He's the big boss man of the song. Another really important element of the book is, 
well, it's, it is this idea of ancestral spirits watching over people. And uh, without going into any details at all, there are some really tragic elements of the book. There are some tragic deaths. Where do people go when they die in this book? Uh, people transition up into the sky camp. And in particular, the ones that are, you know, part of this story go into a, a particular star called Muradigindamala, um, which is our Yuluroi word for um, the morning star. And we have this whole kind of um, astronomical uh, knowledge about Muradigindamala. In reality, he's an old man who's laughing at a woman who bent over and had to pick up something, she's got, she's got a fat bum and he's laughing and his laugh is the twinkling of that star. And Muradi Gindamalar is the really the host of the people that come from Darnmore um, up into the sky camp and become this waiting choir to sing, to sing in, um, to start the song cycle of the crocodiles. The sky in Darnmore but also in Yulleroy in real life we call them. We have the same word for the skies we do for the floodplain. Um, our same word for Milky Way. Warrnambool is reflected. The Milky Way is reflected on the earth in the water. So the sky and the land are interchangeable at times. Nadi, you just mentioned the song of the crocodile, and that's that's the title of the book. What is that? What is the song of the crocodile? The song of the crocodile is uh, the ending of the book. In real life. So for me, this is kind of getting a little bit, what is it, me trying to be clever or something. But the dedication for the book is for my Murumbaya, my homelands. And because I live on Sydney, you know, and I, I go back all the time, but I just feel that every time I go back, I learn and experience all these beautiful, wonderful things. I wanted that my place to know that I am so grateful and thankful for that. And the Song of the Crocodile refers to the fact that the ending of this book, uh, the final cover or the last word is the beginning, is really the beginning point of this big dreaming story we've got in Yulare country. So I wanted to, yes, I wanted to write a book about, um, you know, generations and land and spirit, um, but I also wanted it to be firmly rooted in the world in which I belong. Um, and so I wanted to have something that connected into the way that we understand um, life and the world as Yuluroi people. So the Song of the Crocodile um, lures out a beast that starts a transition that is very, a really important um, um, dreaming story for Yuluroi people and the creation of a very special place that was created by the fight that the creator had with the crocodile. Um, called Naran Lakes. So in, in the book, the song, the song is uh, uh, alluring of a beast, but it could be poison or a cleansing or a purging of no good business. Um, but also, you know, for me, it's also the point of this beautiful story, creation story that is part of who I am. Nadi, as we've seen and as we've we've talked about today, there's a stark divide in the book between the people of the town and the people of the campgrounds, between the white people who live in the town, the indigenous people who live in the campgrounds. Is that symbolic of the divide between white and black Australia? Definitely in the past, I think so. I mean, I, this was a creation of my own making but there are recognisable things to many Aboriginal people. And I often, you know, I often think of my grandmother uh, and the life that she led. And actually my father lived in a place almost identical to the campgrounds. He lived out on the river with no running water and no electricity and, you know, scooting around the outskirts of towns. And he's one of 11 kids, is that he's right? one of 11, that's right. And, I, you know, I, I, I hear about his time um, at Monkila Bend, it's called, and I think, you know, they talk about it like it's the golden era. <laughs> I think, but you fellas had nothing. 
and actually you were kept that way. But yet it is such a rich and beautiful story for them, my dad and his brothers and sisters and how they grew up. I thought, well, there's something in my modern sensibility that I'm missing out on here. And I have a deep understanding of the injustice that my family and other families have um, encountered. Um, but also, and that I feel that while that has made shape my mind, it's also their story. And so we can't go, I can't even go telling my father's story. That's his job, unless he tells me he wants, unless he tells me he wants me to do it. Definitely the difficulties that are in the book were real. And the way that they kind of show their face today are also real. Transi transitioned difficulties with a different kind of um, facade, but still there. And that comes from that history of us being apart and scared and um, fearful of each other. Maddie, your book is so rich in detail. The language is so rich. The descriptions of the landscape are so rich. The use of language for people who, people who are not of your people, who are reading this book, I think just learn so much. What would you like non-Indigenous people who read your book to feel? And what would you like them to take from it? Definitely, I would love there to be a kind of a, an understanding of the beauty of language, whether you're able to say those words or not, um, an appreciation of the richness of um, Aboriginal language and a connection to that is something I would really like non-Indigenous people to, to feel. Um, I would also like non-Indigenous people, and I, I started off thinking about this and being unsure about, you know, the ethics maybe of this, is that there is a lot of very difficult stuff that happens in the book. And one of my frustrations is that how do we stop people from understanding or, or having a kind of knowledge that this thing takes place, but not being able to feel it. Uh, there's a lot of sorrow that happens. And I wanted people to not just read it, but to feel it. And so then by feeling or, you know, sympathising or kind of being able to embody a sorrow that Aboriginal people carry, Perhaps that spurs people onto action or relationships or connections that's not happening now. I think uh, one of my frustrations, great frustrations, is what the thought of what happens when you have communities or families of people that suffer, you know, hit after hit after hit after hit after hit. What what effect does that have on groups of people? How can we... Um, how can, how can you make that a real thing uh, in your understanding of yourself as an Australian person, person, an Australian, and what can we do together to relieve the burden of that? That's something that I was, uh, I wanted to do because I don't want our, our people to carry that stuff anymore. No good for us. So how can we shift that and recognise that and talk about it and maybe move through it helping each other together. I don't know if a novel can do that stuff, but, um, you know, it's something that I wanted to have a go at and see if people can connect and help each other in those ways. Nadi, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Um, I predict great things for your novel. I think it's one of the great Australian novels. It's one of the best that I've read in a long time. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough to listeners. And um, I really look forward 
to watching you promote it, to watching your novel go out in the world and seeing the reception that it gets. So good luck. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Now, that was the last episode of Books, Books, Books for this year. I'll be back on the 8th of January 2021 to interview Sophie Laguna about her brilliant new book, Infinite Splendors. Thank you so much to all of you for joining me this year on Books, Books, Books. I wish you and your families a happy festive season and a big farewell to 2020.